0: (laughs) Son, Holy Spirit thank you again Lord for the gift of our life from you and we did nothing to make it Um, um, you created us we are here as a free gift Um, and you offered yourself for our redemption as a free gift You ask us to live our lives the same way, to offer ourselves freely. Um, I ask a blessing on all of us to be strengthened in our efforts to do that, to offer ourselves, to bring you to the world, to make your kingdom present, particularly where it's not wanted and where it makes for difficulties, even within ourselves. Help us to love as you do. Um, I ask a blessing for everybody. Keep everybody safe over the holidays. Um, Help everybody to have a good Advent. Um, Let it be a time of fruitful waiting, that we learn how to wait, not just always have our own will, Um, knowing that um, um, there's an end to the waiting and a joy at the end of it. Um, Keep everybody safe. Let everybody have a joyous Christmas. Amen. Okay, um, what I'd like to do this morning is um, um, try to tie things up a little bit. I've got a couple of things that I'd like to read, but before we get to them, I, um, I want to do th- two things. I want to just briefly review what we've done and then I'd like to as quickly as I can, I'd like to just go through the last six books. Um, I, my sense is that even if the Odyssey was easier to read, um but it's probably still something of a new experience for you all to be I think that God, I hate this it's a college text. It's not a college text. It's this great, you know, founding work but still I I'm assuming that the that the reading doesn't come easily so um, there's a there's a value in Going over the last books, even if just quickly. Um, We got to last time we talked about the wanderings. essential in order for Odysseus to get home. um, On one level, they represent his adventures, um, actual adventures that he had on his way home. Struggles to get home, they're offshore, they get pushed away by the winds and they're out at sea again. Um, He had to learn um, through all these experiences that there are what I'm calling the underlying um, archetype forms of things. That every one of the adventures revealed some underlying reality Um, and there's even an order to them. When he leaves Troy, he's a sack of city still. The next episode is The Lotus Eaters and the the logic of that, the natural logic, you've been in battle for 10 years. Um, You want to get home you're still violent, the first thing you do is be violent. The next thing you do confronting your violence is look for drugs, anything to forget it. I mean, how, how normal that would be for any soldier coming home. Um, most of the adventures presented us with um, f- some form of a feminine archetype. Um, we saw in the um, Iliad that, um, by and large, um, most men um, are blind um, to the violence in their nature. They're very possessive of women. We saw that. The, the work is dominated by men who are, who are trying to outdo one another, um, to um, right or wrong, and woman is at the heart of it. Paris took Helen. It starts when Um, The father comes to ransom his daughter and Agamemnon will get the daughter back. They're very possessive um, with women. The the highest form of booty that men can attain is women, particularly a beautiful one. So all along we've been been confronted with this um, seemingly natural blindness of men to the implications of their actions, the importance of women, how possessive they are, um, and how violent they can be. And here, in the Odyssey, um, Homer is exploring a different aspect of underlying realities. In this case, it's largely women. So, um, um, Circe and Calypso. Calypso is an image of that in woman which is um, immortal, perfect in its beauty she's by the navel of the water, she's close to something divine, she offers Odysseus immortality. Circe is an image of that beauty and woman that awakens the animal in man, she turns all of the men into swines, they become pigs, they're animals. So, the Lastrigonese Queen is a woman who is as large as a mountain, I think that's an image of a, of a woman who's, who's made too important and creates a culture of violence around her. When Odysseus comes, the king picks up a man and destroys him and the armies of of Lestrigones are, are described as picking up boulders that are larger than men and destroying Odysseus. All, the, all of his crew, all of his ships are destroyed except one. It seems to me that's an image of a culture, a whole people. Um, the skill and charybdis are feminine. The sirens are feminine. Um, so, over and over and over again, he, he is con- continuously having to deal either directly with the power of a woman or their effects on men. And um, it seems to me there's a great truth to it. If you look at our culture today, you know, if, if you look at advertising, most of the things are presented in terms of beauty. And, and the, the central representative, the central sign of that beauty is generally woman, whether she's presented sexually or through cosmetics or on a car, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, that, that's as clear an indication to me as I know that there's a transcendent element that in some ways women image the beauty of God, that that beauty is, is revealed in the beauty of a woman, her face, her body, and the power that that has over men. Odysseus has got to come to terms with that power if he's going to come home. And we see it at home. The home is being ravaged by a hundred suitors. We have to ask why a that, hundred. Clearly that's an allegorical figure. It means something more than just a hundred suitors. So the the home is being thrown into chaos around a woman. So we cannot look past that fact. If the Iliad is about men at war, the 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 Odyssey is about a, 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 a world in which woman is at the center of it, and the remarkable power that she has, and all that Odysseus has to come to terms with if he's to get home. So, we went through those. We talked about the land of the dead. Um, he encounters um, Achilles, who says, um, "I'd rather be thrall to a f- um, a farmer than." Um, king of the land of the dead. This is the man who is the most glorious figure in the Iliad. The, the great hero who stood above his city at the end. We don't, we don't see a city destroyed. We see this extraordinary figure defeating Hector right. and fully alive. We know that Achilles is killed. Homer doesn't show us that. And I think that's purposeful because he's showing this remarkable figure sort of larger than life and almost larger than a city. With this whole question of kleos and honor and what it means for the human soul. Um, the men have very little good to say about women. Um, Agamemnon was treacherously killed. Um, I can't remember his words for.
1: He was bad.
2: Um, <laughs> um,
0: Here, back well, I've got to hear something. Got, um, anyway, they have no good to say and when Odysseus encounters the queens he keeps getting these descriptions of their homes and their estates and sometimes their children none of them mention their husbands and I read that passage at the beginning of book 15 first page of book 15 when Athena goes to get Telemachus and tells him to go home to get back to Ithaca put things in order and she says women don't remember their husbands, they forget their husbands, so we know from the afterlife that uh, that, that these they're, that we as Catholics understand that there's a fall and that the fall unsettled that sexual relationship between Adam and Eve so what was once this this um, relationship of what's the word accord harmony peace of Mutual love, reciprocal love, um, affection—man um, and woman at peace. That one of the effects of the fall are these disorders between the sexes. They were buried. They were at the center of the Iliad. They're at the center of this book. Remember, we opened. We opened the book at um, at uh, Pylos in Sparta and Ithaca, and all three of those homes were in disarray. Um, Nestor makes almost no room, none that I can see of for his wife. All he, all he can do is talk about his past deeds. And Menelaus and Helen live in this gloom. The, the, the past sort of hangs over them and um, Helen's answer to that is take this um, um, heart's ease potion which I'm sure is like the lotus eaters drugs that it, it, it makes people forget father and mothers. Um, Thranachia was the last episode and I do want to speak about this today. We didn't talk about it last week. Um, We have to talk about it. Odysseus has all these extraordinary, and by the way, and and the one major masculine archetype was the Cyclops. Mm -hmm. And there we see the images of the brute strength that men are capable of. when the appetites are fed. I gave you the image of the soul, Plato's image of the soul with the appetites, right, the Mm -hmm. different forms, Um, and what rules in the human soul. The Cyclops, um, I suggested it, um, are an image of the suitors. Um, Narrow-minded, can't see, ruled by their appetites, So, the the human soul and the archetypes of reality were all laid bare, and I think we're meant to see that um, this is not a modern work in which we're shown a man reflecting on the world, this is an action, this is a world of action. So we don't see Odysseus reflecting on any of these, but the fact that he tells the story should suggest to us that he's stepped back from them, he's looking at them, he gives us all these visible images of all these invisible realities. He's come to see the underlying causes of things. And he's ready to go home. And one of the, one of the crucial things he had to do was go to the land of the dead. He, he had to step outside of our world to look at, at our world from a perspective of final ends, what things become. And that's where we learn what happens to men and women. That's what they did. That's their final end. So we know that's the way they lived. Men and women did not come together. They don't even know each other except in negative ways in hell. So that's a clear indication of the way they lived here. So if he's going, if he's going to come home, he can't go home without learning from his experiences. Um, so I think that that's why this is a paradigm for almost all the literature that will follow it. Um, I want to come to these two things here at the end. Um, I'll come back to them. I want to look at Trinachia and I want to look at this anti-romantic. I think we can say from one perspective the the Iliad is is anti-romantic in this sense. It's very realistic in its treatment of war. Very realistic, you know that. That the Odyssey is anti-romantic in another way. It, 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 it's a critique of all those things that happen as a result of giving into our appetites and exaggerating things, making too much of them, wanting too much of things, desiring, letting the appetites go. Um, the whole force of the odyssey is towards moderation remember I, I, I gave you those schemes didn't I? Mm-hmm. Scary and the, and the Cyclops and Ithaca. If you, if you put all those schemes together what you see is that Ithaca becomes a norm and Odysseus and Penelope become a norm. This is what marriage can be. But in order to come to that they have to learn to deal with all of these extremes. So the whole force of the Odyssey is towards anti-romantic, anti-excessive, towards moderation, restraint, um, the the virtues like that. Um, And it's important to see the paradox in that. It's heroic for Odysseus to do that, to learn that kind of restraint. Imagine coming home and finding your home the way he does and showing restraint having to be thoughtful to work through things to evaluate things to make judgments to size things up before you act um, so there's a tremendous amount of restraint being shown by Odysseus you know I think it's safe to say he learns a lot as he undergoes these journeys in preparation to get home okay let me let me just briefly. Um, um, walk through the last six books. I'm just going to summarize them quickly and then I want to make some um, I want to, I want to um, give some thought to each of these last three aspects of our work together on the Odyssey. Do you all have any questions about anything up to this point? It's to the to the point where Odysseus comes home We've gone over it, I think, somewhat thoroughly. If, I don't know that i emphasize this enough, but if, if we learn about how possessive men are of women in the Iliad, that women are seen as objects, I think it's safe to, that one of the, one of the fundamental truths that we come away from the Odyssey with is the possessiveness of women, it's a different form Circe and Calypso um, don't want to let Odysseus go and they want control over him and he's under their influence for nine of the nine and a half years that he's away so if you put all those adventures together what we're looking at you know, is that the feminine soul presents something as dangerous to man as man does to woman um, that, that, that man and woman are under the effects of the fall. And the, 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 I mean, I think it's really important to see that because if we don't give it its full force, we will take away from what Odysseus and Penelope come to at the end, what, what a man and woman can come to in learning to deal with these things. And I don't think that's a romantic idealized thing. Homer's too much of a realist, he's showing exactly the cost of it. It is hard hard to come together. and We know that from our own faith. It's hard to love or there wouldn't have been a crucifixion. You can put that down as one of the wages like Christ before we get there. Okay, let me summarize these last six books. Um, book 13, Odysseus arrives home. I want to look at this because it's, it, it really is important. Um. Turn to two hundred five. The Phy- We talked about this, right? The Phaeacians drop him off and Poseidon dumps a mountain on them. And why? What the significant significance of that? That didn't we?
3: Yeah.
0: The the Phaeacians are an image of the modern technological city. Right. Their their ships go across the sea like. Thought. The thoughts of men. It's exactly like computers. That's what computers do. It's the thoughts of humans unimpeded by matter. Matter's not in the way. We can go on the computer and suddenly we're in India. Or, or in, what was your class called? The... Um,
1: search engine
0: optimization. optimization. <laughs> God, good. God. Is there anything more unpoetic than search engine optimization? <laughs> That's the efficiency of human thought unimpeded by matter by the way that's angelic it's 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 a denial of the incarnation in humans the the, the true thought we can transcend the the, the the great glory of Christianity is that Christ reaffirms the importance of matter he glorified it by entering into it taking it on for humans to be angelic gnostic is a denial of the glory of the body one of the things that God gave us in our creation in making us humans um, so, the Phaeacians have a mountain dumped on their ship. It's, it's the way of showing that they can't master nature, that there's a hubris in, in attempting to do that. The first response after that is they tell each other to be more prayerful. So they, remember the Cyclops are wounded, the Phaeacians are wounded. Wherever Odysseus go, he brings pain. Um, he's a reminder that there are norms in nature. You have to be careful. The divine is there. After the Falcons drop him off, um, Athena comes disguised and he wakes up. Mm -hmm. It's crucial that he's asleep because I think it's Homer's way of showing us, reinforcing this fact that everything that's happened here belongs to a world of the, well, today we would call the unconscious, the subconscious. He arrives asleep. When Dante passes into the inferno in the Divine Comedy, he will be asleep. He'll be unconscious because he's entering that world, a deeper interior world that, that's so obscure to us. When he awakes, he's met by Athena, bottom of page 204, top of 205. And he says this to, I heard the name of Ithaca when I was in wide, sorry, I can't read well with this. You
3: heard that name of Ithaca? Crete.
0: Far away across the sea, now myself, now I myself have come here with these goods that you see, but leaving as much again to my children. I have fled in exile because I killed the son of Edominius, um a man swift of foot, who in wide creek surpassed all other men for speed of his feet. I killed him because he tried to deprive me of all my share in the plunder. He's lying to her. Mm-hmm. And then down below, she is proud of him. Down below, the goddess great Athena smiled and stroked him with her hand and took on the shape of a woman with both beautiful and tall. It would be a sharp one and a stealthy one who would ever get past you in my contriving, even if it were a god against you. He would, you know Odysseus, he, he always struggles to be resourceful, even if it's a god that's around helping. Why does he lie to her? And why does she praise <clears> him? <throat> we're told lying's not good, we shouldn't lie. Are we at, as Catholics, are we at odds with the classical world on this?
3: Well, the gods of the Greek world were, I mean, they lied they did all the things that the fallen humans do, pretty much. I don't know, maybe she admired him for his for shrewdness.
2: <laughs>
0: well, what's the shrewdness here? If he's being shrewd, shrewd how and why?
1: Because he's come back and he's trying to conceal himself because he's trying to figure out what's going on at home. I think there's an underlying, I mean, he knows he's back, Mm -hmm. but he's trying to figure out what the plan is, how he's going to get. And so he doesn't want to give away his his identity to anybody until he figures out what he's going to do. And he doesn't
2: know
0: her. He doesn't recognize her. Mm -hmm. Right. He doesn't know it's Athena. I think there's also yes that because this is the beginning of the disguise. Um, she she knows him. He doesn't know it's her. He's got all those possessions, all the possessions, all the booty that the Fakians had given. He just he says, "I killed a man who was swift of foot. So even if somebody's fast, they're not going to outrun me."
2: Right.
0: Don't you see what he's doing? Mm-hmm. He's warning we, her off. But, he's yeah. He's we we just left the Iliad and one of the things that we should be taking away from that Iliad is that people do the larger part of what they do for booty, for possessions. Are things any different in our world? Most people spend their lives trying to acquire things. And if they, if they can't get them legitimately, they will do it illegally. They will commit crimes to get things. So Odysseus is a realist. He knows that, that people take things, that there's evil in the world. Um, we will learn shortly that Eumaeus, the the, the swineherd, um, was sold into captivity. He was he was the heir of a king. He was going to be a king. He was sold like people are like children today in slave trade and sex trading, trafficking. Right. right. The world uses the world want the world people in the world want things. The appetites are the most driving force everywhere in this. The ravenous belly. People want. They grab. They take. And they take humans. So it, it seems to me pretty clear that he's he's being realistic in trying to warn this person off <laughs> not to mess with him. Mm-hmm. That even somebody who was supposed to be really fast couldn't escape him. I mean I sometimes think if you were you know if you were walking down a dark street and suddenly got it confronted, accosted by somebody, would anybody any of us have the wherewithal to create a fictional story that would do something to, to warn these people off. Mm-hmm. Or would we just get killed? The, the thing about Odysseus is that he's always shrewd. He takes responsibility for evil. He's always dealing with it. Here he does here. The first thing that he does when he gets home is that he shows he's on guard. He's doing what he should do to take responsibility. He's got all these possessions <clears throat> so this stranger better not mess with him. And, and obviously to show her appreciation for what he's doing Athena expresses her pleasure in him. Um, when, he, when he comes home he meets Eumaeus the, the swineherd. Um, in book 15 Athena comes to Telemachus, tells him to go home. When we get back to Ithaca we get the story, of, of the backstory of Eumaeus that He was the um, son of a king, he would have been king. Um, and here's again the, the treachery of women in mm-hmm. book. Um, what page? Um, page 236, I think. Maybe. Let's see. Yeah. Um, by the way, on page just across the page on 234 is a third of the way down, but still for the sake of the cursed stomach, These, that image, the ravenous belly, the cursed stomach, the vicious, I mean all, all of those terms of the, the, the appetites driving men. He was the king of a son on page 236 towards the top. Now in my father's house there was a Phoenician woman, both beautiful and tall and skilled in glorious handiwork and yet these Phoenicians, subtle men in their talk, beguiled her like the maidservants who gave in to the suitors, she gave in she becomes the means of stealing him and ransoming him the, the ransoming that was so much a part of the Iliad world is over, um, has its part here. Um, um, Eumaeus sleeps outside, he is, it's a sign of, think about this, I mean Homer knows exactly what he's doing. Here's a man who was born into a position that would have made him a king. He's a swineherd, Odysseus comes home, at this point he doesn't know this is his master, and he gives up his bed and sleeps outside so that Odysseus can sleep there. So he's a man of deep humility, he's a loyal servant. Um, in Book 16 Telemachus returns home and Odysseus reveals himself to him and after 20 years father and son are reunited. This is an important point for both men. This is the point at which um, um, two men who have been separated, father and son, come together and bring two parts of their life that were separated together. They both stand almost like gods. Odysseus does to Telemachus. um, And they begin to make plans to deal with the suitors so this is the beginning of or actually this is in some sense moving towards the fulfillment of all that Telemachus began when he set out in search of his father. Mm -hmm. He's about ready to take on the suitors with his dad they will kill them all so he is stepping into his manhood he's beginning to do things to play his part in bringing order to the home um, Odysseus and Euma- Eumaeus set off for home um, when they get there in book 17 um, the only one who recognizes Odysseus is his dog Argos right, I remember that. and he dies as soon, it's as if it's, it's a tender scene. Think about this: he, nobody recognizes him except the animal. And as soon as he sees him, he dies. It's as if he's been waiting. Dogs are loyal creatures. I don't know if any of you have experience with a dog, but if you if you do have a dog, or you know how how absolutely dedicated they are, it, it's a relationship of absolute, um, appetitive sympathy. They want to stay next to you, to you know, to be petted. Uh, so the dog waits, and it, to me it's a reminder, as in the Iliad, of the way in which this subhuman world um, works with man. Because remember at the end of the Iliad, when Achilles went back into war, his horse, Xanthos, prophesied his death. Mm-hmm. And Achilles says, Why are you saying this to me? The horse knew. Um, we have a dog, and there are times. There are times when you wonder if there isn't something they sense, even before it happens. It's like at an animal level of just pure, not rational, but on sub level, dogs are aware of something, sometimes in a way humans are not. Um, Argos dies. Um, Odysseus is insulted. The suitors do not realize that this is the master of the home it's just another indication of their blindness Um, but few people do Um, a beggar comes and um, challenges Odysseus for begging rights Odysseus beats him and defeats him and the suitors attack him afterwards so he's actually attacked by the men Um, the suitors go home that night in book 19 um, Odysseus and Telemachus are beginning to make preparations for the battle the next day. <clears throat> that night Odysseus goes to see Penelope and he, um, he tells her um, that her husband is coming home and is probably on the way home now. Mm-hmm. In book 19 um, Eurycleia, the, the maidservant, recognizes Odysseus, um, page 292. <coughs> yeah. um, I, I alluded to this last time, but let me let me, <coughs> take, let me take us to it here at the bottom of the page. Penelope doesn't recognize her own husband. Interesting and the significance of that, but at the bottom of the page she tells your client to bathe this guest it's, it's one of the rites of hospitality. She does, and we get the background story of, of um, Odysseus's grandfather, Autolycus. Um, the bottom of the page Autolycus, now find yourself that name you will bestow on your own child's dear child, for you have prayed much to have him. Then Achalus spoke to her, gave her an answer My son in law and daughter, give him the name I tell you. Since I have come to this place distasteful to me, <coughs> Ithaca is a distasteful place to many. The king of that place is distasteful. We know that. Wherever he goes, he brings pain. By the way, I don't know if I mentioned this time. H- have you ever had this experience? Um, can you imagine that it would have been easy for the disciples to be with Christ? Or hard? Very hard. I would have thought it would be. Re- Haven't all of you had this difficulty that how hard it is to be around a virtuous person or acts of virtue? We're so unaccustomed to them that we like, that we sort of depend on our disorders. That's the level at which we live. So when we come confronted with virtue, it's often painful. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether it's verbally in what we say to each other or what we do or not do that... um, being virtuous is not easy. It's a painful thing. And being around virtue, I think, is not an easy thing. I don't think it could have been easy for the disciples to. Their love had to be great enough to overcome the difficulties that they faced. Constantly learning, wondering, being confused. Um, Autolycus says Since I've come to this place, distasteful to many, women and men alike, on the prosperous earth so let him be given the name Odysseus that is distasteful so Odysseus (coughs) means as we said distasteful brings pain uh, makes people uncomfortable not want him um On the, the night before <coughs> um, the final battle on page 300, Odysseus can't sleep. On page um, 298, the bottom, he struck himself in the chest and sp- spoke to his heart and, sa- and scolded it. Bear up my heart, you have had worse to endure before this on the day when the irresistible Cyclops ate up my strong companion. I think we're taken back to that image because he's going to be facing the Cyclops again. Mm-hmm. They ate his companions. Um, the suitors have been doing that and we're going to see exactly why in the next page. It's a sleepless night him at the bottom of 300. Father Zeus, if willing you gods led me over wet and dry to my land after giving too much affliction. Let one of the waking people send me an omen from inside the house. He's asking for an omen. Asking for an omen. What does Zeus do? Thunders. So he spoke in prayer and Zeus of the councils heard him. The gods listen to men. He asks for an omen. Zeus thunders. And immediately what happens after the thunder is um, is, a, is a confirmation that the sign was authentic. This is called in the ancient world a taking of the auspices. We've been seeing it all along. It happens in the Iliad a lot. With, remember with um, Cooley Damus who's the bird reader who keeps reading the omens and Hector doesn't listen to him The taking of the auspices, the auspices, the holy things. An omen is given. Zeus answers. Now, how do we know that what we're getting, what we hope for as an omen, a sign, isn't an illusion? Because we know Agamemnon had a false dream. People are susceptible to false things all the time. A taking of the auspices is... Um, looking for a confirmation to make sure that it wasn't false. Immediately sent thunder from shining Olympus, high above the clouds and noble Odysseus was happy and from the house a mill woman sent him an omen. She was nearby where the shepherd of the host had set up his hand mills and there twelve women in all had been bending to grind the wheat and the barley flour, men's marrow, The other, since they had finished grinding their wheat by now, were sleeping, but this one had not ended her work and she was the weakest. She stopped the mill and spoke aloud, a sign for her master. Father Zeus, you who are Lord of the gods and people, now you have thundered loud from the starry sky, although there is no cloud, you show this forth a portent for someone. Grant now also for wretched me this prayer that I make you. On this day Let the suitors take for the last and latest time their desirable feasting in the halls of Odysseus. For it is they who have broken my knees with heart-sore labor. As I grind the meal from them, let there be their final feasting. What have the suitors been doing? Grinding up human beings. Exactly like the subclass. These twelve women, what, what have they been doing for the last X number of years while the suitors have been eating? The suitors are freeloaders. They're the kind of people who take advantage of other people and who beat them down. So here's one of the clearest images of the effects of the appetites, just as we saw in the cave with the Cyclops eating Odysseus' men. That was a literal image of it. Here we see it in reality. These people have been beaten up, ground down. And here's this one woman exhausted, still doing her work. So these damn suitors can eat? Makes me mad. Think you can tell? Um, what's the taking of the aus- auspices? Odysseus asks for an omen. Um, Zeus gives one. He answers, and then it's confirmed. Odysseus hears this woman speaking from the mill, saying, "Let this be the last day." So Odysseus knows this. Is, it happened everywhere in the Iliad. It's going to happen here. It's going to happen in major ways in the in. Virgil, major, major ways that are gonna lead to the founding of Rome. So the taking of the auspices is not a small thing. What does the church do when somebody says a miracle occurred? They take the auspices. They have to look into these things to confirm them because they know the religious imagination can be off the chart. People can imagine all sorts of things. The church is very slow. They they have to be because these things are so dangerous. Right, they do it with miracles, they do it with saints. So this thing, taking the auspices, is not new, wasn't invented by the church, it was there before. There in the natural order. Um, In book 21, Penelope sets up the bow contest. Um, Mm -hmm. This is the moment now that the suitors have been waiting for. She says she will marry the man who can take Odysseus' place, and the sign of that will be stringing (coughs) the bow. Um, on page 312, towards the bottom, all the suitors try and fail, which indicates none of them is capable of taking Odysseus's place. Um, line 125. Telemachus takes the bow. Three times he made it vibrate, straining to bend it, and three times he gave over the effort. Yet in his heart was hopeful of hooking the string to the bow and sending the shaft through the iron, because he had to send it through these irons to show that he was not only strong, but artful, <coughs> capable of using it well.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Think about that. It's, it's not just power. It's, it's a combination of power and art that he has to have the ability to use this thing well. There's an indication that, for the son, that he's ready to assume his place in, in the home. And now, Paulina... I can't tell you how much I want kids to... I, 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 kids do not get this today. And they sh- if they should be getting anything, they should be getting what, this, you know, what we're doing here, because of the help that it would give them growing up to learn these things. How many kids are being taught that it's important to be able to string a bow, but more importantly to use it well. To know when to put it down, to know how to use it. Or, And now pulling the bow for the fourth time, he would have strung it, but Odysseus stopped him, though he was eager, making a signal with his head. Mm-hmm. Odysseus takes it over, and so we know by this fact that Telemachus has reached his manhood. Right. That he, he can stand with his father, in, going, in dealing with this evil. Why does Odysseus take it? I think for obvious reasons because he's taking control because when he strings it we know what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. He's going to take out the suitors. So he's the king returning and he takes the bow and strings it and the battle begins. Who's the first two people he takes out? You should know. No, it's
1: the
0: Antonus. Antonus and Eurymachus. they're the two Leaders, right? If you're going after somebody, who do you want to take out first? You go to the leaders because if you cut them out, it <coughs> will weaken everybody else. So he knows exactly what he's doing. Um, after the, after killing the suitors, he presents himself to, to, or I mean, to Penelope on 339. Take a look at this because I've got to spend a minute on this. Um, Odysseus and Telemachus take all of the maid servants. Mm-hmm. They're screaming, crying. Um, turn to page 333 just for a second. I want I want to just I don't want to take this for granted because it, it it raises a serious question here about reading this book. They take all of the maid servants. Middle of the page, 333. But the sleep given them was hateful, so their heads were all in a line. They, they put the, well, let me go up. Um, they, they took these strings, these cords, and strung them across the room and then placed their heads in them. So their heads were all in a line and each had a neck caught fast in a noose. So they took this rope and wrung it, strung it around the women across a line. So they're all in a noose, a loop. And each had her neck caught Fast in a noose, so that their death would be most painful. They would see each other struggling. Mm-hmm. They struggled with their feet for a little, not very long. Then they take Melanthius, who is this awful coward and a treacherous one. He um, along the porch and <coughs> courtyard, they cut off with pitiless brawn <coughs> his nose, his ears, tore off the private parts, and gave them to the dogs. Mm-hmm. Then, after they had washed their hands and feet, they went into the house of Odysseus. Now, after they've cleaned up and executed the, the suitors and the um, maidservants, Odysseus presents himself to Penelope. Right. Now I want to come back to this, but, but let me look at this scene for a moment. Um, Odysseus presents himself to his wife and um, he's just defeated the suitors. He's just brought order to his home he's been away for twenty years and he presents himself to his wife he's like the conquering hero, here's this anti-romantic element he expects his wife to sort of swoon that her husband's home and look at all the good he's done and instead he's met with this sort of cold indifference at the bottom of 339 mm-hmm. Circumse- circumspect Penelope said to him, "Answer, you are so strange I'm not being proud nor indifferent nor puzzled beyond need and I know very well what you look like when you went in the ship with the sweeping oars from Ithaca. Come then, Yuriklai, and make up a firm bed for him outside." This is her husband, and she's saying, Yuriklai, make up a bed for my husband, this man, put, put the firm bed here outside for him and cover it over with fleeces and blankets with shining coverlets. Odysseus is outraged. He's just conquered everybody. He expected his wife to show what a great hero he is, and she says, put up a bed out there. So she spoke her husband trying him out, but Odysseus spoke in anger with his virtuous minded lady. What you have said, dear lady, has hurt my heart deeply. What man has put my bed in another place, but it would be difficult for even a very expert one, unless a god coming to help in person, were easily to change its position. But there's no mortal man alive, no strong man, who lightly could move the weight elsewhere. There's one particular feature in the bed's construction. I myself, no other man, made it. There was the bowl of an olive tree with long leaves. So he, he used the bowl as the foundation for their bed. There's no way they could have moved that out. Mm-hmm. Well, once she hears that, it, 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 it's pretty clear that it was a test. She realizes it's Odysseus and um, They go into each other's arms and this is the moment when finally the reconciliation takes place. Um, Why does she do that? And what's your response to Penelope?
1: Well, I think she's been pounded for so many years by so many men who have told her lies that (coughs) she's got to be shrewd about it. She's got to be sure. And I think she's pretty shrewd. Yeah. I think so too.
0: Yeah. In some ways, they are a match, aren't they? Mm-hmm. I mean, he he's known for his shrewdness. He's called clever and cunning. and to to do anything else, I mean exactly that way, to do anything else would be too innocent.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, in a world in which evil exists. so it it's just a sign of her virtue that, like Odysseus, she's taking responsibility for evil, being careful. because once the test is over and she realizes it is, then it's, she's yeah. completely giving. she's completely giving. <coughs> this is the moment. Um, and uh, it's, it's just really important, I think, to say, it. she has been faithful for 20 years. Yep. And she's not been like the maidservants or the, or the Phoenician woman who sold Eumaios um, into slavery. She's been faithful, she's been virtuous, she tried to use her cunning to put the suitors off. Mm-hmm. She was treacherously betrayed by one of the maidservants. She's a virtuous woman, and part of her virtue is visible in the care that she takes with these things. She's not innocent. She's not playing like the world is good and you know it's an evil place. So, one um, one last thing here on page 330, 341, Next page. The two of them go to bed. I've been talking about the differences between the epic and the novel since the beginning and and. Um, following up Bhakti's comment comment that the epic takes us into an ideal world in the past that's removed from the present and I've been arguing with that position but one of the things that happens in the Iliad is that because of the choices that Achilles makes he brings us into a present and a new sense of honor takes us out of that past I think that we're to to see that the exact same thing is happening here on page 341 line 240 The two of them go to bed that night and they tell each other their stories. Mm -hmm. They both have stories to tell. Now dawn of the rosy fingers would have dawned on their weeping had not the gray-eyed Athena planned it otherwise. She held the long night back at the outward edge. She detained dawn of the golden throne by the ocean and would not let her harness her fast-footed horses who brings the daylight to people. She stops time. This is a timeless moment. So think about this. Um, we, we've been shown all of these various archetypes of, of both men and women. We've seen archetypes of reality. Skill in Charybdis is a reality archetype. It shows us that one of the things that we have to do in life, I think most of the time, is, this is anti-romantic, again, it's not have everything or nothing. We want everything to be perfect More. or It's the lesser of two evils. He knows if he goes by Charybdis, he's going to lose everybody. And he knows if he goes by Scylla, he will lose six men. Circe tells him that. He, he even asks, and she, she chides him, he says, isn't there in some way I can get around losing six men? He, d- he doesn't want to lose them. Mm-mm. Homer's so good about this. Odysseus doesn't want to lose his men, but he has to. So, lesser of two evils. There are moments like that that he faces when he comes home, where he has to choose the lesser of two evils, not get what he wants. Um, the Fiaci, or the, the uh, Lestrigone's Queen, is a reality. It's a, it's a culture of violence surrounding a woman. So, he, he's had to deal with all of these archetypes, male and female, to get home. We saw in the beginning, in the the, um, Telemachus, the Telemachi, Pylos and Sparta. In both marriages, the husband and wife were living in the past. So for the the most part, we suppose that most people don't leave their wombs, they don't escape them, they don't get out of them, they're borne down by them. This is the moment when when in a sense this is anticipating the modern novel, according to Bakhtin, I'm arguing that the whole action of the epic is to come out of that ancient world into a new present where something extraordinary happens, whether it's this new sense of honor, this kleos, this luminous gift that man has by nature, or in a marriage between a man and a woman. And and there's no way to romanticize it. Look at what they both had to go through to get here. So Homer is very realistic, easy, not by any stretch, not even close. If you look at what they've had to go, but what he is showing us is they enter this timeless moment with each other and I think we're meant to feel they've resolved all these wounds from the past. They, Odysseus has answered the disorders and come into this present moment. Um, I've got a question, for, two questions for you, and then I. But um, bef- bef- before I do, I wanna, I wanna put a cap on this. What are the hundred suitors? Why a hundred? What is, what does it mean for him, to, um, to defeat them? And how are we supposed to look at Odysseus as a hero? If we compare Odysseus to Achilles, we've got a very different kind of hero. He's still capable of performing deeds that are martial, the the deeds of a soldier to go to war, to fight physically. Athletic, he's strong, he strings the bow, he defeats the suitors, so he's fully capable of using his strength where strength is needed. But he's very different from Achilles as a hero because um, he uses cunning restraint, he puts on a disguise when he goes home, um, what do you call them, um, devices, techniques, those are not the right words, but... activations. Um, the, the sort of things that I think we associate with women who are so often more indirect, Men because of their physical strength will very often get in somebody's face and bowl them over. Mm -hmm. Women are often more indirect. Um, He uses indirection, restraint, cunning, guile, uh, in dealing with evil, but when he needs to he steps out. Remember Athena is the 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 mentress, the goddess for both of them. And I talked about wisdom last time, didn't I? Mm -hmm. As a feminine virtue, peculiarly Mm -hmm. feminine that she she does both, she's the only god that is dual, that she is the weaver but she's also a warrior, mm-hmm. that she's their protectress. Um, so Homer's showing us two very different kinds of heroes for, for man in the epic. One is in war and one is at home. I'll be darned! Now that, now that it's over, what? God, yeah. Here. By Are you? Am I late? Because I didn't hey, know. I see, because we started early today. Hey, Bob. Hi, Norm. You all no, remember Norman. I it's a summary. <laughs> Maybe. Can you give, can you offer this one to Norm? You made my day. Boy, <laughs> okay. well, I'm sorry, I should have told you. If I, if I thought you were coming, I would have... Help yourself. Okay. So, I, We all all know the only reason you came here is to get one. (laughs) I want to be fed, (laughs) Bob. All of us do. The ravenous belly, you missed it. Right at the heart of the Odyssey, the ravenous belly. Anyway, this is the moment when man and woman, husband and wife, come together um, in a new kind of experience. This is I mean, and in some ways, it's another anticipation of Christ. Think about all the, all the images of the Bible of wedding feasts. They, they run through Christ's ministries everywhere. And the book of Revelation, if, if you haven't read it for a while, you should go back and look at it. The book of Revelation ends with this cry, Come, Bride, come. It's Christ calling his church, the bride. The theology of the body, Pope John Paul's great work, talks about... Um, the, the relationship between man and woman as an image of the spousal love of God for his beloved. So that image of the, of the, of the importance of marriage runs through, the, it, it's implied in lots of places in the Old Testament, the, the, the Song of Songs, you know where the beloved, the lover calls the beloved, and then all of the metaphors, all of the parables that Christ uses about the banquet, the wedding feast. So here, at the end of the Odyssey, um, we, I, I think we're meant to see that um, Nestor's marriage with his wife is a good one, and, and um, Menelaus's wife with Helen is a good one, but when we compare them to what we have here, when Athena stops time, we've got a very very different thing and it, it's, it's, it's so clear how difficult it is, what they have to face to get there. So there's nothing romantic about this at all. It's like an implied cross. Both of them have to suffer tremendously to get to that point. What do the hundred suitors mean? What does it mean when he defeats them? I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm going to put two questions to you before we stop in a minute, but, but I want to end on this. We talked about the various feminine images, the, what Odysseus has to learn to see in woman if he's to come home to have the relationship with Penelope that Homer shows, shows us is possible. Um, <clears throat> let me try to just gloss over that whole problem how are we to understand Odysseus's battle with the suitors especially in the context of his marriage and as a prelude to his reunion with Penelope? I offer the following reflections somewhat provisionally and with questions I myself still find hard to answer even after wrestling with them for years and years of teaching the Odyssey. Odysseus has been away from home for nearly twenty years but since what he encounters on his wanderings is largely the primeval feminine Are we to take his defeat of the suitors as a sign that he finally is free of those powers a wife has over her husband by virtue of her beauty and the concupiscence she both arouses and answers? Remember, I've been talking about the importance of desire. The power that a woman has over a man because of her beauty. The concupiscence that she awakens and satisfies. Calypso is an image of that immortally, spiritually. Circe's an image of that physically. Um, It's surely no coincidence that Odysseus comes home to defeat the suitors just after he is freed from the power of Circe and Calypso. He is apparently ready to do something he couldn't before. If this is the case, are all the suitors, at an allegorical level, images of what he has to overcome in himself all that is aroused by Penelope as a woman in order to bring order to his home. And I don't mean just for him as her husband, I mean for everybody, like the Lastryganese queen, because remember she's surrounded by a culture of violence. If you look at Hollywood celebrities, particularly the women, I mean and imagine the, the culture around them. I, I think you can imagine what Homer's seeing in this. What is he facing? What is he facing at home because of Penelope? Is it really possible to understand his struggles without linking her with the feminine figures of the wanderings? What aspects of the feminine do they image? The enormous Lestrigonese queen seems to be an image of inordinate power or influence in her home. Helen has that power. Mm-hmm. In one sense, it seems to me, she's, the Lestrigonese queen is an image of Helen. The whole war was fought over her. There's this enormous culture of violence around her. What's going on in Penelope? She's surrounded by a hundred suitors. Can there be any doubt about the power that she wields in that home with her beauty? There's violence surrounding her, potential violence everywhere. The enormous Lestrigonese Queen seems to image inordinate power or influence in her home. Circe, the sexual attraction that brings out the animal in men. Calypso, the possessiveness and seductions of a spiritual immortal love. The sirens, the allure or beckoning effects of beauty, walk into a bar and watch barmaids and men engage each other. James Joyce and Ulysses, who's, all of Ulysses is rewritten on it's a redoing of the Odyssey story, has a barroom scene where the men and women are flirting. It's the sirens, my sweet honey, I mean that language that women use when they're calling men honey and sweetie and you know and the sort of flirting going on and Think about the underlying allure there and the tempting that's going on. Um, On the surface it looks like people are just talking but I think all of us know, I certainly do, that, that there's so often an undercurrent of some strong passion. Even if it's, we're not acknowledging that something's going on, why would they go to bars otherwise? The sirens, the allure or beckoning effects of beauty, skill and charybdis, the condition of choice that no man can escape without pain when in the presence of beauty. Yeah? We always, every man is gonna face it. You should have come earlier. <laughs> I'm sorry there aren't more men actually I'm sorry there aren't more men and I women I've I, yeah. I tried my ahead, I, to get I, here I, I, I wish I had, I I truly wish I had said something to you, Norman. That was my fault. Um, and finally, Nasika, feminine promise, youth, beauty, graciousness, all that woman promises to be when finally loved. How are they all present in Penelope? Penelope is the epitome of the feminine. She has contained in her all of the feminine disorders mentioned above to disordered men, and this is a crucial thing I wanna end with here, with, with this aspect of it. She has contained in her all of the feminine powers and disorders mentioned above to disordered men, men whose lusts give women inordinate powers. Men whose lusts give women inordinate powers. Where do their powers come from? From the men that give it to them. Dante is going to show this in a remarkable way I mean, this is going to be Christianity now by the way one of the central episode in the whole of the Divine Comedy is the siren episode where the siren is going to entrance Dante and bring him to her Virgil is going to try to wake Dante up and can't Lucia has to come from heaven it's a a divine figure who has to come to get Dante out of it that's how powerful the siren is and what Dante shows us and he explains it all, I mean, he'll bring a clarity that Homer can't. Is that it's um, idolatry. It's the net. Na- because God, God gave us infinite desires. That's the way He created us. Infinite desires. The only object that will answer infinite desires is what? The
3: infinite.
0: An infinite God. Yes? When we turn infinite desires away from God, what do we do? We want things too much. Yes? Mm-hmm. We turn inordinate desires, infinite desires, which will never be quieted until... St. Augustine, my heart will, is restless until I rest in thee. It's only when we're in the presence of God that those infinite desires will be quieted. Meanwhile, we have to struggle because what we do is turn infinite desires towards the world. We want things too much. What's that called? Idolatry. We make things greater than they are. So Dante's going to lay all of this bare that um, because we, we want, and what happens once we get it? We want more. Or we get disillusioned and turn away from it because it doesn't, it doesn't answer an infinite desire. She, is, she has contained in her all of the feminine disorders and powers mentioned above to disordered men, men whose lusts give women inordinate power. And here's the crux of it. They are present in conspicuous ways in Clytemnestra and Helen To the suitors, as an image of feminine beauty and sexuality, Penelope is an overpowering temptation, an object to be used to gratify their lust as well as their cravings for power. They want to take Odysseus's place to be king, to have possessions, power. Anything different in the modern world? I don't know it. To them as lawless men, and here it is, to them as lawless men, she is death. What happens to them? Killed. To Odysseus, the virtuous man who has learned restraint, she is beautiful, faithful, pious, modest, wise, clever, respected, and loved. She is a trial to him for 20 years, helper, temptress, goal. She is finally fulfillment at the very end. You read that again. Can I?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: They are present in conspicuous ways in Clytemnestra and Helen. These feminine powers and disorders. The whole, the all of the, the whole of the Iliad was predicated on the the war was being fought at Helen. She was the center of it. Although we don't deal with her much, she's there everywhere. Fight to is what we begin the Odyssey, with. she kills her husband when he comes home. To the suitors, as an image of feminine beauty and sexuality, Penelope is an overpowering temptation, an object to be used to gratify their lust as well as their cravings for power. To them, as lawless men, she is death. To Odysseus, the virtuous man who has learned restraint, she is beautiful, faithful, pious, modest, wise, clever, respected, and loved she is a trial to him for twenty years she is helper temptress goal she is finally fulfillment at the very end (coughs) so I think when we see Odysseus defeating the suitors it's not just the suitors it's something in him as a man that he has had he's been confronting all of his life and that he has to overcome before they can have this moment this moment where they're out of time, or they're in this timeless present. Now let me <clears throat> let me stop because I, I wanted I should have covered this earlier but didn't because but I wanted. Why, why did all of Odysseus' adventures come to room crash on the rocks of Thrinacia? What the men do is eat the cattle of Helios, and they're told not to. If you remember, they're warned not to. Circe tells Odysseus, the one who goes there to be sure not to eat them, he tells the men don't eat the cattle. And one of his men says, it would be better to die at sea than to die starving. They eat the cattle, they die. They set out and the ship crashes. Why does, do all of, talk about anti-romantic, why do all of these adventures with all these violent creatures, the Striganese Queen, the Cyclops, why does, do all of these adventures culminate in an adventure where men are destroyed because they eat? Any thoughts on that? It's such an ordinary thing. Although we've been getting warning, the ravenous belly, the treacherous belly, the, you know... It
1: goes back to your appetite. Does it not? To the whole...
0: Overpowering, for sure. Right. Why eating?
1: Because they're they're focused on the physical and the body and not the noble or the higher themes. That's what I was trying Mm -hmm. to say. They're not making rational judgments. They're not looking they're not looking at the totality of where they're at and what they're supposed to be doing. So they're just looking at the here and now, they're not looking at the future. And whereas Odysseus was on the island and he would he knew that he wasn't supposed to be there, first of all. He was warned against going there. His men told him to go there, knowing that there was gonna be this temptation. And, you know. He went there anyhow, and for whatever reason, the men decided that they got too hungry and they had to eat the...
0: What do we would, know about the cattle? What's the what strange thing that we know about the cattle? The cattle? Yeah. <sighs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Sacred? They were sacred.
0: Yeah, they were sacred. What was their nature? They were, Bev. Were, they were sacred. What. Page 188, 188. 188. look close to the bottom. <coughs> this is Circe warning Odysseus. She tells him, she will, you will go to the island of Thrunakia. You have to go there. But she says, then you will reach the island of Thrunakia where, where are pastured the cattle and fat sheep of the sun god Helios. Seven herds of oxen and as many beautiful sheep flocks. and 50 to each herd. There is no giving birth among them, right. nor do they die away, and their shepherdesses are gods. Mm-hmm. These are not, Remember the poem, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright? Mm-hmm. Remember yep. that? Yep. The, I said that was not a tiger, it's the archetype in God's mind. These are not cattle as we know them. These are the archetypes. So what's the problem? What's Homer showing us here? It's an ordinary... Act eating.
1: eating. the cattle, and they can't come back. I mean, they're gone. Now.
0: I don't even know what it means for him. My se- if, they, if if these, paddle, these cattle are not of generation, they're not of the world of generation. They never die out. If anything, they're like Blake's tiger. These are the immortal forms, the archetypes of cattle. So my my assumption is that if if. If they're eating, whenever, however, we'd understand that. What we're seeing is an act of presumption or um, blasphemy.
3: Yes.
0: That that the Indians have the sense about cattle. I, I mean, I, we 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 don't. But with the Eucharist, I mean, we believe that Christ is in the Eucharist. We actually take Him physically into us. That we eat to to live, it sustains us. The danger for us is that eating, we can approach eating as a presumption. We take it for granted. But like all other things, it has a divine origin, a divine source. Where does all food come from? We did nothing to, I mean, we prepare it, we work it, but all things on earth are a gift. I think what he, what Homer's showing us is that that what leads to the death of his companions is this horrible presumption that they take things for granted. And, and the most basic, because they're the ones that are most easily taken for granted. We eat food all the time. So in every way Odysseus is learning to not be presumptuous, to take care that things mean more than they seem, and that the most ordinary things um, mean far more than we often realize. As Catholics, we should, I mean, it seems to me there should be a particularly keen sensitivity to this because we believe that Christ is in the Eucharist. Taste and see. I mean, That's Mm -hmm. the line from the Old Testament. Taste and see. He himself said, unless you taste of this, you know, you will have nothing to do with me. So that eating, eating is right at the heart of our life. Without it we die. But the crucial thing here, the last adventure, the one that leads to their ruin, is eating. And I don't think that's an accident. I think Homer's pointing up again that the most ordinary things matter. We can't take them for granted. I've got just one quick question for you. Um, There are lots of people who are squeamish about the ending. Homer has um, shows Odysseus and Telemachus stringing up the maidservants yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: so they're kicking and dangling and it's a <laughs> grotesque image and then um, Mamie castrating um, um, right. the, uh, Melanthios? What's Melanthios. Mel- Melanthios Melanthios yeah by the way another inter- one last note about at the very end there's an uprising again because the father of the dead suitors, right, right. starts a revolt, and inter- interesting, Delios, who is, a, who is faithful to mm-hmm. Odysseus, is the father of Melanthios, who's a betrayer, and Melantho, the woman, one of the maidservants, who, who's the one who lets the suitors know about the weaving. Mm-hmm. So Delios, who is faithful to Odysseus and helps him fight at the end, has two children, who are unfaithful and who, who are killed. It's Homer's way of showing you can't protect everybody in a family. Some people in a family are going to lose it. So everywhere there's this note of a sort of harsh realism to everything that Odysseus has to come to terms with before he can come home. But the question I want to ask you is is it just for him to kill the maidservants and the suitors as he does? because the, the whole question of coming home is restoring order and...
1: I think he had to.
0: Um, um, some people really object to this strongly and then say that he's has no mercy, that he's, a, he's not a hero. He's not, some people take this position, he's not a hero, he's a cruel uh, man still living with the violence of the past in the Iliad. So, what do you think?
1: I think he has to because they're going to be out to get him forever. He's going to always have that over. He did house cleaning, and and he had Mm -hmm. to clean his house. And if these people weren't loyal to him, then you need to get rid of them.
0: Yeah, I think exactly what you said. That if if they survived, they would be plotting against. They were plotting to remember. They were plotting to kill Telemachus too at the beginning. Absolutely. Yeah. Sneakily. um, they're, they're murderous people, and Homer's not romanticizing any of that, I think. If they're to have this, they've got to deal with evil. He has to deal with evil over and over and over again um, for them to come to the place that they are at the end.
1: And I think even at the end of the book, where um, the leader gets killed by Odysseus and all of a sudden the fighting stops, I think that was... I think that's the kind of the climax to say, okay, now all of a sudden peace is restored because, again, you had that one leader that was rousing up the rest of the village, you know, against Odysseus because of what he had done to the suitors. And it's like, you needed to, you needed to nip that in the bud. And once he did, it was over. Mm-hmm. Because I think everybody understood, from what I could gather from this, mm-hmm. that there was an injustice done to him, meaning to Odysseus. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah and it's interesting that he can't answer the last one when the father rises up um, Odysseus's father kills him that the fighting won't stop this is the realism of Hoda. the fighting will not stop without the help of the gods because Athena right. has to come in at the end right. to quiet. That, that evil is so present in the world that, that fighting is so much a part of what goes on without the help of the gods even that fight wouldn't have been put to rest right. Um, let me just end on this note. This is the Perusia. Remember the word Perusia means the second coming. It's the second coming of Christ. It's the return of the King. Um, he will return in glory, but in judgment. He was here. He will come again in all of his glory, but in judgment. The Iliad and the Odyssey present an action to us that is resolved. All this violence with the return of the king, the king coming back. And i suggested the number of ways that Odysseus is like Christ. He's a norm, he's an image of a norm, the virtues. The, you know, he restores justice. Um, he makes possible this remarkable marriage between a man and a woman. So in so many ways, Homer seems to have had all these intimations of what, what Christ is going to bring when he comes into the world. So, so this is the Homeric world that we've just completed. I'll, I'll do an overview again when we meet in January. It's going to all be picked up with Virgil, all of it. And assimilated into this new adventure after the destruction of Troy when Aeneas sets off to found a new city, and that new city will be Rome. So Thank you. Thank okay. you. Um, thank you all for coming, Norman. Especially, I wish I'm so sorry I didn't. Well, I tried. Bob. I know you're here. <laughs> I'm so I can't tell you how glad I am to see you. But you know, uh, you mentioned revelation. Yeah, uh, <coughs> we're
2: studying revelation now in Bible.